grab your Bibles if you would. We're going to be in Ephesians this morning. About a month or so ago, Dana asked if I would handle the, the preaching duties this morning, and I asked him, I always ask him the same thing, um, what do you want me to preach on? And he always tells me the same thing, whatever you want. So he was no help at all, so I had to figure it out on my own, and I had a few different things I kind of bounced around with for a while, and then I settled on the, the text we're going to look at today. And I had been thinking about that and, you know, where are we going to go and what are we going to talk about that a little bit. And then uh, two weeks ago, I saw, the same time you all saw, he's preaching from Ephesians 2, and I got a little panicky there just for a second. I thought, uh-oh, I might have to start over. But he uh, preached from verses 11 through 22, the end of the chapter, and we're going to camp out at 1 through 10. So that worked out, uh, fortunately. And th- then last week... I think last Sunday evening, he uh, sent something to me about the fact that he's going to do his grandmother's funeral this Saturday, and so he wasn't going to be available next Sunday. So probably what's going to happen is we're going to work our way backwards through Ephesians. A perfect world, we'd probably go forwards, but it just worked out that way, okay? It wasn't on purpose, but that's where we're at. So uh, two weeks ago... Uh, in, uh, in verse 11, it starts out with therefore, and as I'm sure you've heard, whenever there's therefore in the Bible, you need to know what the therefore is there for. So that's what we're going to deal with today. And then next week, Lord willing, probably we'll look at chapter 1, but one Sunday at a time, right? So also, just a heads up, we're going to spend some time in Ezekiel in chapters 36 and 37. So we'll be bouncing back and forth there as we go along. In C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, we uh, read about this character in this uh, series of books, Aslan. And uh, he is described, you know, he's wild. He's, he's not like a tame lion. And he is probably, if you go on the internet, there's all sorts of camps arguing back and forth. I wouldn't suggest you do that. But he's, pr- I'll use the word probably, a- a- an allegorical character, character representing Jesus. It's a, it's a work of fiction, but there's a parallel there that I think is probably purposeful on uh, the author's part. And uh, he is described as wild. Now, that's not wild as in out of control. Uh, Aslan, the character, is self-controlled, but he is clearly not going to be controlled by any of the other characters in the book. Nobody's going to put a collar on Aslan. And it becomes obvious as you read through the books that Aslan's not at anybody else's mercy in the stories. As a matter of fact, everybody else is at Aslan's mercy. And Aslan's good, so that's not necessarily a bad thing. That's actually a good thing. Now, does Aslan, this character in this fantasy story, adequately represent who Jesus is? Absolutely not. It's a story that's just fun to read. Um, and, and that's true of all attempts to describe who God is, all allegories, all analogies, all metaphors that are trying to paint a picture for us and describe for us who God is will be stretched and stretched and eventually under the weight of who God is will break. That's not to say, though, that there, those things aren't useful. 
we do use analogies to describe who God is. The Bible uses analogies to describe who God is. The Bible uses uh, ways to describe God in, in human terms. The Bible calls God a bridegroom, a husband, a father, a shepherd, a builder, a physician. It uses language like God's finger, his hand, mouth, heart, eyes. And these descriptions can be helpful because it does paint a picture of God in a way that we can understand. We're limited in our ability to understand God, and some of these things are helpful to get an accurate picture of who God is. But there is a risk involved. Whenever we describe God in human terms, the risk is that we take this infinite God and we shrink him down to size and we make him a little too much like us. God is infinite, unlike us. And Wayne Grudem describes the infinite nature of God like this. He says, He is not subject to any of the limitations of humanity or of creation in general. He is far greater than everything he has made, far greater than anything else that exists. So we need to understand an important difference here. We're human, so we can become overcome by things. We can be overwhelmed by things. We can be crushed under the weight of things. And though we may describe God in human terms, that's not who God is. God's not going to be overwhelmed by anything. So we dare not scale down God to the point where now he's vulnerable the way we are. And let's acknowledge something. There's some part of us, there's some part of our flesh that kind of likes the scaled down version of God. We like the idea of a tame lion. We like the idea of a lion that we have a collar and a leash on, and that's just not the God of the Bible. God is totally sovereign over everything that exists and everyone in his creation. So let's recognize something about our our culture. Our culture isn't particularly crazy about the idea of a God at all, but a God that is all-powerful and sovereign and does all his holy will and no one can stay his hand, well, our culture absolutely hates the idea of a God like that. A.W. Pink lived from 1886 to 1952. He was a pastor at several different churches all around the United States, and this is what he says in his book, The Sovereignty of God. The concept of deity, which prevails most widely today, even among those who profess to give heed to the scriptures, is a miserable caricature, a blasphemous travesty of the truth. The God of the 20th century is a helpless, effeminate being who commands the respect of no really thoughtful man. The God of the popular mind is the creation of a maudlin sentimentality. The God of many a present-day pulpit is an object of pity rather than of awe-inspiring reverence. So why, right out of the gate here, am I camping out on God's limitless sovereignty? Well, it's because Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is going to press us a little bit on this. He is going to get us to a place that, if we're honest, our flesh may not really want to go. And he does this in this 
letter to the Ephesian church. He also does it in the letter to the Colossian church. He also does it in his letter to the Christians in Rome. And we should recognize that he's writing it by the Holy Spirit to us also. So let's look at the text together. It's Ephesians chapter 2, and it's verses 1 to 10. This is what it says. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray one more time. God, help us to understand who you are and what you have done for us. Help us push aside everything that might distract us from what you would say to us this morning. Make us a people who are bold in your truth and yet are marked by a humility that would be pleasing to you. Amen. So five things I want to cover today. This is the roadmap for this morning. The five things are, number one, who you once were. Who you once were. Number two, God acts. Number three, even your faith was a gift. Number four, we are his workmanship. And finally, number five, why this is good news. If you didn't catch all those, I'll I'll hit them again as we go through. But number one, who you once were. We see that in verses one to three, and there's a lot going on here. So let's break this down a piece at a time. First of all, it says, and you. And we need to answer the question, to whom is Paul speaking? And this is really true for any time you're reading the Bible, when the author of these letters addresses the reader, to whom are they speaking? This is an important question to ask because if we misunderstand the intended reader, we can really land in some wacky places and we can draw some uh, mistaken doctrinal conclusions. So to whom is Paul speaking in this letter to the Ephesians? The answer is found in, in chapter 1, verse 1. It says right there at the beginning of the letter, it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. So there you have the sender, the author. And then it says, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. So this is to faithful believers at this church in Ephesus. And we need to 
recognize that distinction. It isn't necessarily meant to be taken out into the gates of Ephesus and read to whomever happens to be walking by. Some of this isn't going to apply to some of those people. It isn't necessarily meant for whomever might be sitting at the gathering of the believers, but is not a saint, is not a faithful believer. This description we're going to read is for the faithful in Ephesus. So to the saints in Ephesus, and we should recognize to the saints at Logansville, this is for us too. You once were what? It says you were dead in sins. It says you, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in, when, in which you once walked. Now, this is an important thing we should recognize about this. Dead means completely dead. It doesn't mean mostly dead. If you're a fan of The Princess Bride, you know that uh, Wesley was not completely dead. He was mostly dead. And as we know, mostly dead means partially alive. That's not what Paul means when he says, and you were dead. He does not mean you were sick. He does not mean you were sinking and drowning. He means you were dead. You don't have to turn there, but in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, it says, And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So our first father, Adam, was never going to physically die if he had just obeyed God's law. But he did break God's law. He did eat of the tree. And in the day he ate of it, he died spiritually. Now, eventually he died physically. But in the day he ate of it, he was dead, all the way dead, completely dead in his trespasses and sins. And in the day he ate of it, the world was cursed Everything was ruined. So what does this mean to be dead in sin? What does that look like? And we're going to jump back to Ezekiel here. Ezekiel 37. It's going to be past Psalms and Proverbs, past Isaiah and Jeremiah. It's toward the end of the Old Testament. And in Ezekiel 37... Verses 1 and 2, it says this. This is what it means to be dead in sin. It says, The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord, and he set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones, and he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. So what's the point of this? The point is, nobody's doing CPR on a pile of bones, right? This patient's not going to make it if it's a dried-out skeleton. Pile of bones doesn't need CPR. Pile of bones needs a miracle. Nobody sees a pile of bones at the bottom of the ocean and cries out to the pile of bones, just take my hand and I'll pull you up in the boat. That would be ridiculous. The pile of bones can't hear you. 
but we really, really like the idea of partially alive. But that's not in the book. The text does not mean the opposite of what the text says. Dead does not secretly mean, well, kind of alive. So you were dead in sins, and you were following the world, the flesh, and the devil. Back to the Ephesian text, it says, following the course of this world. Let's acknowledge that for those who are dead in sin, following the world seems really right. It's comfortable there. It just feels like home. The poison tastes delicious when you're dead in your sins and following the course of the world. We've all probably heard somebody, when the issue of something they do that is a sin comes up, say, you know, it just seems really natural to me. It seems normal. This thing makes me happy, and I know that God wouldn't want me to be unhappy. That's following the course of the world. Proverbs 14, verse 12 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. And we're not just following the course of the world, we're enslaved to a sinful world, and we are enslaved to sin. Romans 6, 6 says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. That means that we were once enslaved to sin. Titus Chapter 3, verse 3, it says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. So let's keep going. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, the prince of the power of the air, is the devil. If you have not been adopted by God, the Bible says you are a child of the devil. The devil is your head, in the same way that for those who love him, Jesus is the head. Well, if that's not you, then the devil is the head. And there's this interesting conversation, I'm sure we're going to get there, in John chapter 8, where you have this high noon moment, this, this confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees. And if you've ever been in a meeting or you've ever been at a family reunion and you have uh, two opposite sides and they both seem to have some sort of authority within the group and one, one person says one thing and what's the other person going to do? Well, they're not backing down either and everybody kind of gets the wide eyes and backs up. That's what's going on here in John chapter 8. The Pharisees tell Jesus in an effort to sort of justify themselves. Abraham is our father. And then they kind of go low. They say, we've heard the rumors about your mama, and you probably don't even know who your daddy is. I'm paraphrasing. But that's what they said, and they meant it like that. And so Jesus does not slink away. What does he say to, him, to them? In part, he says this. This is uh, for... Verse 43 and 44 from John chapter 8. He says to them, Why do you not understand what I say? 
It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He didn't mix words. The devil is their head. Now, we should be careful here that we don't ascribe that sonship with the devil as something that's exclusive to the Pharisees or exclusive to those who are religious hypocrites or legalists. Because apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, nobody can bear to hear his word. So true believers were following the world, they were following the devil, and they were following their own flesh. Verse 3 says, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So we need to recognize that there's a problem with the world. There's a problem, of course, with the devil. But the problem isn't all just out there. And I like the sort of nuanced, very gentle way that Pastor Vody Bauckham describes this. He says, what's wrong with the world? You. Matthew 15, verses 18 and 19 says, But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. So as my friends from down south would say, what's down in the well is coming up in the bucket. It's the problems in me, too. And we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So apart from a work of God, we are consumed with hate for him. And to the saints, you were consumed with hate for him. Colossians 1.21 says we were hostile in mind. That would be hostility towards God. That's not the same as neutral towards God. Nobody's indifferent to God. There is the narrow way that leads to life. There's the broad way that leads to death. And there's no middle road. In Romans chapter 1, Paul explains that everybody knows and nobody has an excuse. And then he goes on to call the unregenerate haters of God. That's who you, saints at Ephesus and saints at Logansville, once were. So Paul is telling us in these first three verses that we were cursed, we were helpless, and in and of ourselves, hopeless to do anything about it. Now that I've adequately bummed you out, let's get to the, to the good news, shall we? Number two, God acts. God acts. We find this in verses four through seven. It says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now we dare not miss the fact that all of the action and the 
these verses is done by God. We're not doing anything in these verses. We're the ones being acted upon. It is God who made us. God raised us. God seated us. It also says that God is rich in mercy. That would be God's goodness toward those in misery and distress. We might say that God's goodness toward those who are dead in their sins and completely helpless to do anything about it. So in an eternity past, God was rich in mercy. And then God created everything. And then there was a rebellion in heaven. God's still rich in mercy. And then he casts the rebels out like lightning. And God's still rich in mercy. And God offers those fallen angels no chance at redemption. And God is rich in mercy. But God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, and we'll come back to that part, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. This is where the distinction between all the way dead and mostly dead is a really big deal. Who did the making alive? God did. We were totally dead, we were not partially alive, and he raised us back to spiritual life. Now flip back to Ezekiel, we see another picture of this. Ezekiel 36, verses 25 to 27. And note here as I read through this, who's doing something? This is God speaking, starting in verse 25. It says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is not somebody who's asking anybody for permission to do anything. So how does this happen? It says, by grace you have been saved. What is grace? We need to understand what that word means. Grace is God's goodness toward those who deserve only punishment. Grace is God's goodness to those who deserve only punishment. There is no such thing as grace given to someone because they did something and grace withheld from someone else because they did not do that thing. That's not how grace works, ever. If it would offend justice, and I should be careful when I say that word, I mean perfect justice, not earthly justice. I don't mean my understanding or sense of justice, and I don't mean your understanding or sense of justice. I mean God's perfect, true justice. If it would violate his perfect justice to withhold grace... That's not grace. Grace is 
never something that God is obligated to bestow. So grace has nothing to do with, well, you know, I decided, I chose, I invited in. You will find nothing of that in Scripture. If our answer to the question, why did God save you, starts with the word I, we've probably missed this. Unless maybe you are going to say, I provided the completely dead corpse. Now, you may have heard something that sounds an awful lot like, you know, I'm pretty sure, though, that I've read something about Jesus stands and knocks at the door, and if you would come and answer, that's Revelation 3.20. That is not the door of a sinner's heart. That is the door of the church at Laodicea, which is lukewarm now. It's neither hot nor cold. That's Jesus making an appeal to the church. That's not a sinner's heart. The closest thing to that sort of language would be Acts 16. Lydia, a seller of purple goods, and what does God do? He just opens her heart. That's it. So since it's not in any way deserved, it's not merit-based, because of course that's not what grace is, then why does God save anybody at all? Why aren't we universalists, as in universally everybody goes to hell? Why did God make anyone alive? Well, there are two reasons mentioned here. Look at verse 4. It says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. Oh, how God loves his people with such a great love. And his love is not theoretical. It is a personal love. He interacts with us as persons, and we can respond to him and relate to him as persons. And this is unique. A God who is limitlessly infinite in all his perfections and characteristics, and yet personal and knows you as an individual. So you can watch all the, all the Star Wars movies, right? And, and there's something called the Force, But nobody in any of those movies are talking to or about the force the way David talks about God. Just one example, Psalm 18, verses 1 through 3, this is what he says. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation. My stronghold, I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. God is infinite, but God is also personal. So to the saints at Logansville who are faithful in Christ Jesus, God loves you. He doesn't love you because you're married to that person sitting next to you. He does not love you because you're a part of this local church. He loves you you, the individual. So what's the other reason? Look at verse 7. So God made us alive, and it says, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So God purposed to put on display the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness. And in displaying these characteristics, he will be all the more glorified. 
So why did God save you? To be sure, because of a great love he has for you, but also for his own glory. For his own glory. Flip back to Ezekiel one more time. Chapter 36, verse 22. God addresses this question exactly. He says, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And then again, if you skip down to verse 32, this is what he says. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord. Let that be known to you. So I am going to save you and put my spirit in you. And I do love you with such a great love, but it is not because you're too big to fail. He loves you. He does not need you. Jesus is not brokenhearted and he just couldn't go on without you. He loves you with a great love, but he's not dependent upon you. There was a time when you and I weren't around and he was doing fine. So God wants no confusion about this. He is jealous for his own glory and it is not by merit that he made you alive. And then we're here in Ezekiel. This is just too good to read. So look at uh, 37 verse 3. We've got to finish this, uh, this up here. It's, it's just too good. It says, And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O oh Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O oh dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and, you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you. And you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. So mamas, when you're sitting at that table and you're looking at those little faces and you're telling those little people about the person and work of Jesus Christ, men, when you're at the break room or you're at work or you're talking to a coworker or a neighbor or whoever you can tie down long enough to listen and you're telling them the gospel, this is what you're doing. You're standing in a valley of dry bones and behold, they are very dry. They are all the way dead. They are not partially alive. But here's the power of God. It it works. It, it works. God does something when we do that. He vindicates his gospel. And this is how we know. We don't have, you don't have to just trust me. I can offer compelling proof for this. And what's the proof that this works? We're here. 
It's not the first century, and this is not Jerusalem. We're here at the ends of the earth in Logan County, Ohio, and it's 2018. That's because people stood in a valley of dry bones and prophesied under the breath to the breath, and those bones stood up. We were dead, and God made us alive. Number three, even your faith was a gift. Even your faith was a gift. So in Ephesians 2, look at verse 8. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. So faith, we need to understand, is absolutely required for salvation. Where there is no faith, you should be worried. You should be afraid. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So faith is more than awareness of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Faith is more than agreement with the person and work of Jesus Christ. Faith is awareness of, agreement with, and trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And just to make it clear, Paul says that even your faith isn't your own doing. It's the gift of God. So we can't boast about that. We're all just a bunch of spiritual corpses that God breathed new life into. Number four, we are his workmanship. We are his workmanship. Verse 10, it says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In other words, Jesus is the potter, and we are not the assistant potter. We get to be the clay. Jesus is the potter, and we are the clay. Jesus, uh, Paul is saying that we were dead, and now that we are saints, we are new creations in Christ. Created to do what? Created to do good works. And even our good works were prepared by God beforehand. So we become sheep to the great shepherd, and the sheep know him, and the sheep follow him. So the devil is no longer our head, but Christ is. And what does that mean to be his? It means we will walk as he walked. Imperfectly, of course, but we will walk as he walked that we might be glorified. Number five, last thing, why this is good news. So we are at God's mercy, and that can strike us as a little scary. We're not used to that sort of thing. We're, we're used to, in earthly terms, there are kings, there are presidents, there's government authorities, and we have rights. There's a limit to what they can do. That's not how this works with God. We are at God's mercy, and he purposed to make us alive in him, and no one will thwart his purposes. Here's the good news. Not even you. Not even you. 
It's good news because you didn't do anything to make yourself alive and you can't do anything to mess it up. That's good news. As John MacArthur says, if you could lose your salvation, you would. You definitely would. You would mess it up if you could, and so would I. But you can't, so you won't, and that is good news. We are at God's mercy, and he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. We worship a God who will vindicate his gospel in the redemption of his people. So maybe you are just terribly grieved by your sins. You're thinking of, of what, who you used to be and what you used to do last week, last year, 10 years ago, 20, 30, 40 years ago. And you, can, you just can't bear the weight of it. It, it, it. it sickens and grieves you. And you're feeling overwhelmed by what you've done. This is the good news. No matter how haunted you may be by those things. We do not worship a tame lion. We worship the lion of the tribe of Judah. And your sins do not make him nervous. He doesn't get overcome by those things. He doesn't get overwhelmed by those things. Though they are overwhelming to you, they are not to him. He is immeasurably rich in power, and his blood covers a multitude of sins. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 to 11 says this, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. It seems that heaven is going to be filled with people who are described by this list. People who were dead, people who were hostile in mind, children of wrath, deviant, violent, but washed and made alive. There is no stain of sin that the blood of Jesus cannot wash away. You used to be those things, but you were washed, you were made alive, you were a new creature in Christ. So you are not who you ought to be, but you are not who you used to be. And that's good news. Maybe you are, to be sure, a sinner, but you have suffered horribly at the hands of other sinners. Maybe you have limped in here exhausted and wounded and bleeding. This is good news because Jesus is the supreme healer. There's a greater rest in Christ we do not worship a compassionless king. You may be shattered at what has happened to you. But be encouraged that Jesus Christ is all-powerful and he promises to wipe away every tear. He is never restrained by the wickedness of men. And just like all the rest of us, they are at his mercy too. 
So the God of the universe, who does all his holy will, has promised to heal and restore and make new. So if you're wounded, there's no better news than God is absolutely sovereign to do all his holy will. Maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking, let's see, the saints who are faithful in Christ Jesus, you know, I'm not sure that's me. Here's my appeal to you, that you would cry out to God, I want to believe, help my unbelief. I want you to be counted in the number who will be washed in the blood, who have been uh, made alive, who will have every tear wiped away, who will worship and enjoy the lion of the tribe of Judah, Jesus Christ, forever. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for the saints at Logansville. I pray that they would be encouraged by the news that you are all-powerful and that no one can stay your hand. I pray for those who are wounded and tired. I pray that you would comfort and heal and restore and that all of that would be turned back to you in worship and praise. I pray for those who are still held captive by the world. I pray that you would remove their heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. And I pray that you would make them alive in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.